Hey everyone, in this AB Talks with Lewis house, we start to get to know more about Lewis. Probably some stories that you don't know. It's a very rich conversation. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Okay. Hey, Lewis. Good to see you, man. Good to see you again. We're like twins right now. We literally have the ch- two on the right and then the left watch. Yeah. Except the rings. I just need some rings and some and holes and in my jeans. And Nikes you have. Yeah. So how are you really doing? I'm feeling great. Grateful and great. Grateful and great. Yes. 150,000 people died today and we weren't one of them. For me, that's an amazing day. Hmm. And do you literally feel the statement or you feel obliged to say it? I feel it. I remember it was a few months ago. I was like, I wonder how many people die every day. Cause I was curious that, uh, just a statistic. And it said online about 150,000 to 180,000 die every day. And I just said, man, what a, you know, it doesn't matter what challenge that I might be facing or what stress or overwhelm or burnout or whatever that feeling is or overworked in, in the business. I was just like, this is pretty amazing to have another day. And for me, that makes me very grateful. Hmm. She said grateful and great. Mm-hmm. So feeling great yes. also is connected to that? Feeling great is connected to service for me. That's what greatness is about, being in service. And as long as I get to show up and I feel healthy and I feel like I'm able to help someone else, then that for me is what it's, what's great. So every day I get to do that, which is cool. So feeling great is associated of by serving people. Serving people. For me. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so that's, I would say, where you would draw your value. You feel valuable in life when you're serving. I feel valuable by existing, by being here. And I feel, I feel greater by using my talents, my skill sets, my energy, my thought process to, and my kindness to help someone else. Whether that's one-on-one interaction or whether that's through my show or my content, my business, but any way that I can be of service to someone else by doing something that brings me joy, that's, for me, that's greatness. And is it because, Louis, you felt maybe you needed somebody to be that for you at a certain stage in your life and now you don't want that feeling for others? Um, there might be some of that. I think growing up, I felt like I really wish I knew the answers to certain things. I wish I had more inner peace. I didn't really feel peace ever. I felt stress and anxiety pretty much most of my life until I hit about 30. And so I was always seeking kind of the wisdom, the insights, the answers. And I was always looking for mentors or models of individuals who kind of had the answers. And so that's what made me very curious to always want to ask questions. Um, but finding coaches early on in sports, I know you played sports, so finding coaches, those were the ones that really kind of helped me figure out how to navigate the mind because my mind was playing tricks on me a lot. It was, I, I just felt very insecure, very unsure of myself. And I was very angry about certain situations that happened in my life. And I didn't know how to process these things. I didn't know... They didn't teach me growing up uh, how to process my emotions. I'm not sure if you were taught this by your parents or if school said, you know what, when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or when you feel like you've been let down or you feel like you failed, here's what to do next. They just taught us like, you know, study harder in school and they didn't teach us how to deal with failure. They didn't teach us how to deal with a girl rejecting you. They didn't teach us how to deal with heartbreak. 
It was more just kind of get back up and suck it up. Yeah. And so for me, I was a very sensitive and emotional kid. You know, I cried uh, until I was probably like eight, nine or 10 often. You know, I would cry for my mom in the middle of the night uh, just because I was insecure and afraid. And I leaned into sports to kind of give me some more structure and, and work ethic and those kind of mentors that I leaned on to. So for me, that early on, the lack of peace was something that I was worried about and I was seeking peace, but I didn't know how to find it. Hmm. If I go back mm -hmm. and I say, how was your childhood as Lewis? I think we, I think our memories play tricks on us because for me, the bad moments are very, uh, they're loud in my mind, more than the good moments. And I know there were lots of good moments consistently, but the bad moments, for whatever reason, kind of stand out like flashes in my mind. And so, I try to think about those good times as often as possible, but for whatever reason, when the mind plays tricks on me, probably to keep myself safe or something and focuses on the bad stuff. So, I mean, I talk about this publicly a lot, but I was sexually abused by a man that I didn't know when I was five years old. And I think that really shaped a lot of my insecurities, a lot of my doubt early on, which made me want to figure out how to find that peace. So one in six men uh, have been sexually abused. So I was one of them at five. And there was, again, no model at the time of a man that I could look up to in the world who had been sexually abused. So I wasn't sure how to navigate the shame and the doubt. And, and really the feeling of I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. Uh, I'm someone that can be abused easily. I'm, I'm an easy target for someone to, to attack. And so that was confusing. It's one of my first memories being sexually abused at five by a man that I didn't know. And many other things started to happen to validate why I was not good enough and why you know, I was worthless as a, as a child growing up. Uh, I, I was just struggled in school. I remember thinking every, you know, every year in school, is this gonna get any easier? Like school for me was one of the most challenging things. And it confirmed that I wasn't at the time good enough. It confirmed that I wasn't smart enough. It confirmed that I struggled with that type of learning. And so that's when I really started to lean into sports because I started to find a way to feel more validated and feel more, more valuable by accomplishing things, by learning a skill in a different way outside of the classroom. But the classroom, kind of being the last in my class in school terms and uh, just kind of getting picked on and made fun of because of my intellect or my lack of intellect in school made me very angry, made me very frustrated. And I, and I took it out in the sports arena. I used sports as an outlet to be as big, fast and strong as I could so that people couldn't hurt me anymore. And I think that's what really I was trying to escape the pain and hurt that I was feeling from people because I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to release in a healthy way. Again, growing up for me, there was no model or mentor talking about publicly, hey, I was sexually abused and here's how I got over it. So there wasn't, there wasn't people talking about this. There wasn't athletes on, on TV talking about it. There was no social media back then. 
with people talking about these things. So I just stuffed this in and I didn't tell anyone for 25 years. Wow. And so when I hit 30, I remember I didn't have sports as an outlet anymore. I got injured playing sports when I was about 23, uh, when I was playing arena football, professional football in America. And for the next kind of six and a half, seven years, I didn't have really an outlet to release my emotions in a healthy way. And so it just became harder and harder to learn like how to navigate those emotions. And that's when I started being like, I need to find more mentors, more coaches outside of sports in the real world to figure this out. But I didn't think I would ever talk about this. I didn't think I would ever tell a soul because there was so much shame inside about being abused, being sexually taken advantage of at a, as a young age. And it was so confusing, you know, when you start to think back in your life about certain things that happened to you, you think, how could anyone ever do this to a five-year-old boy? How could anyone ever take advantage of someone like that? You know, you start to think about the darkest places in the world as opposed to the most beautiful places. And that's why I start off this more, or, you know, this, this interview with 150,000 people died today. I'm not one of them. Maybe I'm going through something challenging. Maybe I feel some stress or maybe there's a problem that is happening in my life, but I'm here. And for me, that's a blessing. And I get to continually look to ways to find peace. Because I think that's the thing we want the most is inner peace. And it's the thing most of us are seeking. We're trying to find it through validation in other ways. But at the end of the day, I have found that letting go of my shame, being able to talk about this um, openly and using it as a tool to help other people who've gone through it brings me so much peace because now it's not for nothing. It's a useful instrument that happened in my life to be of service to at least one or other people. Hmm. Um, a few points came to mind while listening. The reason I read that we uh, associate negativity over positivity mm -hmm. is the survival mechanism yeah. as a human creature. Mm -hmm. So it's like when somebody says, you're great, but, it erases everything before. Yeah, yeah. But that know? one flaw, that mistake, yeah. yeah. And you, you highlight. And yeah. I think it's uh, our brains are mm -hmm. wired to focus. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea of um, remembering our past, I, I noticed that we like to glorify it. Even the good times, we make them, oh, you remember when we went to Hawaii? Yeah. And you make it sound like it was wow, but if you really remove the emotion and you think literally it was like, a six out of ten. You, you make it sound like it was nine. Yeah, when you yeah. remember it, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. So human beings glorify the past and relationships and stories mm -hmm. and whatnot. But it's interesting how, like, like you said, yours were loud. Yes. And I was thinking, and I also read that you said that as a child, you were awkward. Very. In school. Very awkward. I mean, I was awkward physically. I, I really couldn't speak. You know, I had a, I had a second grade reading level when I was in eighth grade. So going into 13, 14, I had a, you know, a six or seven year old reading level. And so I was in the special needs classes all the way through college. It took me seven years to finish college. I barely passed and graduated high school and college. I was in the bottom four of my class every semester. The, one of the things that my school that I did in high school is they would grade, uh, they would rank you every grade card that you got for that kind of semester. And I was always in the bottom four of my class. So you'd see the number that you were based out of like, whatever, a few hundred students. And I was always bottom four. So there was always confirmation of why I was stupid 
in school and then being picked on, being in special needs classes, having tutors all the time. I would do tutoring for reading uh, during kind of the lunch break. And so kids would go to recess and like hang out with the friends and I was with a tutor every day for lunch to get caught up on reading because I just couldn't comprehend. It was just, I just couldn't see it clearly. I couldn't read and remember. I wasn't able to focus. But you put uh, an activity in my hands. You put a ball, you put a bat, you put, you know, something where I could, I had incredible vision on a playing field or a basketball court. Like I could anticipate where the next play was gonna be. And so it made me very uh, powerful in sports because I always could see where the ball was gonna be. Mm. But I wasn't able to do that you know, just by reading a book and trying to remember something and then take a test. Like it didn't work for me, but it's, but that sports background has, has paid incredible dividends in my life since, since college, because I'm able to see what people need to accomplish their goals. It's very clear for me what I need to accomplish, what I need to overcome. And when I'm working with individuals and they're confused about their life or their business or their career, it's very clear for me. I can see their future and I can see exactly what they need to do. So the, the, the struggle in school gave me a different outlet. I started seeking other ways I could find value and learning skills in other ways because no matter how much I studied, how many tutors I had, I just wasn't getting good enough. You know, I wasn't getting up to speed. Yeah. And um, it made me seek other outlets. And so sports and, and business has, has played well for me. You know, Louis, I saw a video and the lady was saying how school systems, and this mm. is a topic I like to keep discussing, how school systems are extremely an inaccurate mm -hmm. uh, reflection of what happens in real life. Right. So everything is pointed. Real life, there's hardly any points. Right. Uh, if you don't get a certain uh, grade, you don't pass. That doesn't really compute in yeah. real life. And in real life, you collaborate with people. Mm -hmm. You collaborate to finish a, an obstacle or a challenge. There you're alone in a test and you're supposed to do it alone. And you Study can't, alone, yeah. You can't use Google and you can't do that. And you're like, that's not real life. Right. <laughs> It's so funny how yeah. extremely backwards the educational system is not adapting to the practicality mm -hmm. of what you actually need in real life. Right. So, and it's sad to see, it's sad, but it helped you. So, yeah. I'll, but it, I'm thinking of all the other kids who, who you're just punching their confidence to the ground mm -hmm. and they can be geniuses maybe in art and right. music and God knows what, but you're telling them you're nothing. Yeah. Because your points are less than this. I mean, you played sports, so you know that the only way to be successful on a sports team, if you're doing a solo sport, it might be different, but the only way to be successful on a sports team is to, one, know your skill set and your role, play into your role, and play well with your teammates, collaborate with your team, and always be in conversation, always be in communication, always be in support of lifting them up as the teammate. And if they're doing that for you and you're doing that for them, that's when you can start to be in flow. But if everyone is individually doing their own thing and not being in collaboration, it's really hard to win a game. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can do it once in a while, but it's hard to win at the highest level. And uh, collaboration is the thing, for me, it's the same mindset for business. You know, you are a great collaborator because you have, you wanna interview other people, same with me. 
I created my show to elevate other people and collaborate with people, not say this is the Lewis Howe show and it's going to be all my answers and all my stuff by itself. It was like, I want to interview the brightest in the world and learn and elevate them, which is what you're doing, which I think is beautiful. I think it takes, Lewis, uh, for us to do what we do, other than the interest in, in humans, is to realize we're kind of nothing. Mm -hmm. Always a beginner. There's more. Always yeah, a beginner's more. mind. Like imagine, imagine how lucky. I know you interviewed, you know, God rest his soul, mm -hmm. uh, Kobe, mm -hmm. and people like him and up and down and the variety of humans. And, and you told me you passed 1,100 episodes, yeah. which is crazy, yeah. which shows that you're doing it because you love it. Love it, man. So when when you can get a master class in two hours, mm -hmm. that's a privilege. Yeah. That somebody's giving you the most expensive thing, their time. Yep. And they're telling you, well, this was how I did it. This was the shortcut. This is what I do when I wake up. And you're like, oh, okay. I, I wish this would have been my school growing up. That's literally why when I created it, I said, I, I wish school taught me the stuff that I learned in sports. And from the mentors I was interviewing without even recording them, I was just constantly interviewing people that had uh, accomplished so much in their life, but also were super healthy, also had great, you know, marriages and had families. Like they had a, a holistic approach to life, to living well. And they felt, you know, peaceful, happy, grateful to be where they were at. And I was just like, that's what I want. Cause I was always living in insecurity and stress and kind of resentment and a low level of anger because I didn't know how to process again, all the situations from the past, not just the sexual abuse and the the just kind of the the stress from school but my brother was in prison when i was eight years old until i was 12 for selling drugs to an undercover cop and so i wasn't really allowed to have friends for those four years because growing up in a small town in ohio in the usa there wasn't i didn't know anyone else that went to prison or anyone else in my block or in the neighborhood that went to prison so the parents of the other kids on my neighborhood wouldn't let their kids hang out with me during those four years. Um, so it was just kind of like this confusion, my parents getting divorced, but all, you know, they probably should have never been really married. They got married when they were 19. So it was just kind of a stressful time, always at home. It just never felt like peace. Hmm. And so I was just constantly trying to ask these questions in my late 20s to try to find the solutions. And it wasn't until I was 30 when I finally had kind of a breaking point. Like I was just, my relationships weren't well. Um, you know, my, my business was thriving on the outside, but my business partnership with the person I was uh, partners with at that time was a horrible relationship and it was breaking down. There were fights happening and a lot of resentment on both sides. And uh, I just didn't know how to, again, process my feelings. I think a lot of it was because I never really told people who I was or what had happened to me or how I felt about how shameful I was or how insecure I was. And I think that inability to be 100% vulnerable kept me up at night pretty much every night. I don't remember going to sleep easily. It would take about an hour to an hour and a half almost every night that I can remember until I was 30. I would just sit there and ruminate and worry and stress. And I just was like, why can't I fall asleep? And it wasn't until I was 30 when kind of all these things were falling apart that I decided to do a workshop. I decided to do a workshop because I was like, things aren't working well. 
and I want to figure out if there's anything that I can improve on the inside. And I was a little resistant because at the time I had a big ego. I thought I knew everything. You know, I was like, my business is thriving, you know, all about, you know, all these things. But on the inside, I was still suffering. And I did a workshop. And I remember at one point of this, it was an emotional intelligence workshop in Los Angeles. And it was a number of days where they just had us really reflecting on our past. And I never took the time to reflect about my parents, about childhood stuff, about everything. And those processes got me to the point after many days to open up about the sexual trauma. For the first time ever in my life, I told, I told like a small group of about 30 people. And it was one of the, it was probably the scariest thing I'd ever done. Like I could go up against the scariest guys in football, like the biggest, strongest guys in any sport, no problem. But to reveal my emotions was terrifying, especially in front of a group of people. It was so terrifying. And it was so crippling to the point where after I said kind of the whole story about the sexual abuse, I remember running out of the room a few minutes later. Like I sat down after talking about it, started bawling, and then I ran out of the room and I was like, my life is over. This is literally how I felt. I was like, my life is over. No one's ever going to love me. No one's ever going to accept me. People are always going to laugh at me. It was like all these insecurities just coming up. Uh, my business is going to fail and I'm never going to be in a relationship. It was kind of all these fears at once came about. And this is, this gives me chills just thinking about it because I left this kind of uh, conference hotel room that we we're in doing this workshop for a number of days. I ran outside because I was just crying. I didn't want people to look at me crying. I was insecure about that. And I was so shameful what I just shared. I walk out a few minutes later. It was probably one of the most beautiful things that I can remember happening in my life was this moment. I'm crying. My, my, you know, I'm leaning against the wall across the street, like across the alleyway of this hotel in the back alley. I'm leaning against the wall. I just don't want anyone to come near me. And I'm crying and I, I feel a, a hand on the back of my neck and I turn around and it's probably this 50, late fifties, uh, you know, man that is standing in front of me and he's, he's crying and he says, Lewis, you're my hero. He goes, I've been married for 25 years. I've got three kids. I've never told a soul. This happened to me when I was 11. And it happened to me many times. And he just started sharing this story about how he was sexually abused. And I was like, wait, what? And he's giving me a hug. He's like, I trust you more than ever now. I'll follow you anywhere and you're my hero. And I remember just thinking, I was so confused. Then another guy comes out. There's probably like 15 guys in the room at the time. Another guy comes out, says, Lewis, this happened to me, I was seven. And now at this point, I'm like, this is impossible. I didn't think this happened to anyone else. I didn't know the stats. I didn't research this because I was just so shameful about it. And more men came out from this room that were there and they just opened up about just different things. Not everyone had dealt with sexual abuse, but a handful of them had. And most of them had never told anyone. Their, their partners, their kids didn't know, like no one knew. And this was eight years ago. And I remember thinking to myself, this is weird 
You know, this was in a container of a workshop, but are my friends and family going to think the same way? You know, everyone's vulnerable in this workshop, but is my family going to be there for me? If I talk about this, are my friends going to leave me? I was still afraid. There was so many levels of vulnerability that I had yet to tap into. And I was still living in a lot of fear. And I remember after this workshop, thinking to myself, I probably need to tell my family because maybe it'll answer some questions about my behavior over the years and certain times or just whatever. And I was so terrified. I called a therapist friend of mine and I said, I just shared this thing in this, this workshop, you know, this past weekend. And I feel like I should probably share it with my family, but I'm not sure if they're going to love me after I share this because I'm just afraid. And I said, what would your approach be in communicating, like creating a context for having the conversation? Because I don't know if I just call them up and say, hey, this happened to me as a kid. What is the approach on how I should do this? And she gave me a beautiful gift. She said, I want you to start each call with a question and asking each one of your family members, is there anything I could ever say or do that would make you not love me? Because that was my biggest fear, that they wouldn't love me. And I called up each one of my family members one by one and you know, started the conversation. I said, hey, you know, and wanted to get into the topic. And I said, listen, I had this, this workshop recently I did where I, I opened up about some things that um, are very scary for me. It's very like raw for me. And I wanna, I think I wanna talk to you about it, but I wanna ask you a question first to make sure that you can receive it. And I asked them each one of that. And I'm, and all of them were like, absolutely. There's nothing you could ever say or do that can make me not love you. And so it gave me kind of the permission. And I think that was a still really scary, but it, it gave me more permission to share all my shame about that. And just, and then opening up about everything I was shameful about in my life, which was a lot of things. And one of the most interesting things happened. I thought if people knew about my shame, they wouldn't love me. But the opposite happened. Each one of them started to open up about their past, things that I didn't know about. And it created a deeper connection. And then I did this with friends and it created a deeper connection and trust and intimacy. And then I remember thinking, okay, I'm finished. Like I've told this to my friends and family. I'm done. And yet I, th I thought to myself, this was like maybe six months after I started my show, The School of Greatness, you know, almost nine years ago. I remember thinking, crap, you know, when I was five, I didn't have resources or a mentor or models of men who were athletes or entrepreneurs or whatever, just men that were talking about this and therefore, I thought I was the only one. And I lived in this shame for 25 years, in this pain. And I was just like, mother effer, like, I think I need to talk about this publicly. And so for six months, I thought about this, publicly talking about it. And I was just like, my business is going to be over. Like, no one is going to follow me anymore. People are like the fear and insecurity. Everyone's going to make fun of me. No one's going to like me. Um, I'm going to be poor, you know, on the streets because my business is over if I open up about this. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I'd rather be proud of myself for trying to help people than worrying about 
everyone not loving me. And if I can help one or two men who have gone through this, who are suffering, who are angry, who are resentful, who are self-loathing or living in shame and insecurity, and I can help them discover how to set themselves free, then it's worth it. And so I eventually, about six months later, opened up about this. It was probably the most terrifying thing publicly I'd ever done. And again, it was kind of like sharing it in this workshop, but on a global scale. And I remember publishing it at night and falling asleep and waking up the next morning to literally dozens and dozens of essays from men. And then over the next couple of weeks, hundreds of essays and emails from men oh. opening up into extreme detail about their sexual abuse stories. And I was just like, this is crazy, the amount of trauma that's in the world. Men and women, you know, everyone has experienced something. And maybe it's not as intense as others, but there is a level of traumas, whether it be big traumatic events or kind of low-level traumatic things that have happened consistently for a lot of people in the world, and yet there weren't a lot of tools available for people on how to process and how to feel like they're, they, they're not worthless. And it became a journey for me to continue to heal. As my therapist told me, uh, you know, healing is not an event, it's a journey. It's a journey that we gotta continue on. And the more I talk about these things, whether it be privately or publicly, the less it has power over me, the less it kind of makes me feel stressed. It's when I don't talk about something when I feel ashamed about it. And so that's why I try to encourage people to, to share more privately the things that have affected them, whether it be in a confidential room with uh, you know someone, uh, a therapist or a friend or something they're really confident with or going to a workshop or something like that, so. I have a question, Lewis, and I would love to understand this more. Why? Uh, and it seems like you've done your homework. Why does a child who is the victim of sexual abuse, they feel guilty, they feel responsible, and mm. they feel worthless or yeah. not worthy of love? Hmm. How does that happen? Instead of like anger at the aggressor or, or blaming at the aggressor. Yeah. Why does it become self-inflicting? I mean, I can only speak for myself um, about how I felt. I think at five years old, you know, my brain wasn't fully developed. And so I never felt like it was my fault in that situation. I just felt like I must be, um, you know, worthless for someone want to do this to me, uh, to be able to take advantage of me. And so I had a lot of anger towards the world. I actually never saw that man again. So I had anger towards the man, but I more had it against like the world is out to get me. And then I reinforced through school, through people picking on me or bullying me or whatever it is, um, why, like the brain, my brain reinforced why I was worthless. And then I started doing things to try to find value mm -hmm. and realizing those external things weren't fulfilling. And I think you probably talked about this many times in your show. And I was chasing all the acknowledgements and, and accomplishments in the external world to fill myself up. And it just wasn't, it was never enough. Like every goal, it was almost like I was depressed after I accomplished every massive goal. Hmm. I would work for years to, to make something happen. It would happen and I'd be sad. 
And I was like, it's not big enough. I need more. And then that's kind of a 30 when everything started breaking down. I was like, my relationships aren't working. You know, it looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it's it's broken. Hmm. And I was just like, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live, you know, the rest of my life like this. So that's when I went on the journey. But yeah, from again, I didn't feel like I was to blame. I just felt like, oh, you know, I must not have, you know, I must just be worthless for someone to take advantage of me like that. Yeah. And it just made me feel resentful and angry. There wasn't a, there was, again, I'm five. I, I didn't know how to talk to my parents about this. I didn't know how to like talk to anyone about this. There was no processing. How was the relationship with the parents? I mean, the parents were, my parents were just busy a lot. I was the youngest of four. And so they got married at 19, had a child at 19. And um, they, you know, they needed to do things to just provide for the family. And I don't think they were truly happy as a married couple. Actually, I know they weren't happy because there wasn't a feeling of love in their relationship. So I don't remember experiencing love. They were affectionate to us, but I think for me, because they weren't loving and creating that model, and in fact, they were a lot of screaming, a lot of arguments, a lot of slamming doors, a lot of kind of like this low-level fear and anxiety, it was kind of always on eggshells. And so I didn't feel that. Mm. They loved me and us, but I didn't feel them connected. And so that was, was challenging. I didn't have that model, which made me want to seek inspiring men who had great healthy relationships and be like, how'd you do this, you know? Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, your brother's uh, troubled time. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned your troubled time. Mm -hmm. I also read that your dad, who was close to you and a big advocate of your sports, mm -hmm. also got in an accident. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell me about, because I can tell that this relationship was very strong and I'm, at this, I'm assuming he was a backbone of sorts. Yeah. But then suddenly there is another scary moment mm -hmm. there. Yeah, I mean, for the first 13 years of my life, I feared my dad. I was afraid of him. He was a very big, intelligent, powerful man. And I was just like a young kid trying to, to figure out life. Um, he was very, he was also loving, but I feared him. I don't know if it makes sense, but he was, I just didn't want to mess with him. And um, again, my parents' relationship wasn't good. So at 13, I went to a, uh, during summer and the summer break, I went to a camp in, in Missouri, in the USA. And I was living in Ohio at the time, that's where I grew up. In this camp, I met a bunch of kids. It was like a two week summer camp. And I met a bunch of kids that were going to a specific school in St. Louis, Missouri. And there was something about these kids, they just, had so much joy, acceptance. They were loving, they were kind. And I was just like, I wanna be around these type of people. I wanna be around this energy. I didn't feel like I had that energy in my small town in Ohio. I was hanging out with the wrong kids. I was doing bad things. And I just wasn't proud of who I was becoming as a, as a human. I met these kids and I was like, I wanna hang out with them. And a bunch of them are going to this specific boarding school in St. Louis, Missouri. So I get back from this camp and within moments of seeing my parents at the airport, they picked me up at the airport. I said, I want to go to this school. Can you guys send me there? And they were like, there's no way we're sending you away. And usually kids get sent away for doing bad things. I was like, get me out. You know, I just, I couldn't stay at home anymore. 
My older siblings were off to college at this point. I was kind of the last one there. I was like, I don't want to be in this energy. Get me out. I begged them for the entire summer to send me away. They finally sent me away. And that's when my life really started to change. And my dad actually started to evolve and change emotionally from age 13 until 20, um, 21 when he got in his accident when I was 21. And so the first 13 years of my life with him, it was a lot of stress and anxiety. And the second kind of, I guess, you know, nine, eight years, he evolved into a very loving, vulnerable, sensitive man that was showed up to every one of my sports games that would fly out, uh, you know, or drive seven hours to, you know, a couple times a week to watch me play soccer, basketball, football, baseball, track. Like he would come out almost every week to watch me for the next four years. He was on the field, on the basketball court, taking photos, you know, he was an incredible dad. And then my senior year, um, he went away to uh, New Zealand and he got in a bad car accident where he was driving kind of on this mountain, curvy, windy road. And he was with his new fiance at the time. My parents got divorced many years um, before then. And he got an accident. They're driving on the other side of the road in New Zealand. And the story goes from his fiance at the time that he just got kind of confused last minute. The, the lights, there was no lights kind of on this mountain. He couldn't see, he went around a corner, a car was coming and he kind of froze. And this car came on top of his car um, and hit him, the, the car of the bumper, the bumper of the car came through the windshield and hit him in the head. And they had to cut open the, the car and airlift him out to the hospital while she held his head together because it was split open. So for a couple hours, she's holding my father's head together. And then they cut open the car and they airlift him out there. And so for the next three months, he's in a coma. I'm in the middle of a football season. I just broke three ribs the next morning playing a game. And so I'm immobile for about six weeks. And I'm thinking to myself, do I go fly while my dad's in a coma to New Zealand to try to see if he's gonna be alive or not? We had no clue, he was just in a coma. So we didn't know if he was gonna make it or not. And the odds were pretty slim that he would make it. My sisters ended up going over there and being with him. I ended up staying back with my brother because I, I wasn't really able to fly at the time with the broken ribs. And he eventually wakes up a few months later and it's been a long journey. He's still alive today, but it's like he's not there. It's kind of like he's, it's just not there. You know, he has amnesia. So every time I see him, it's the same conversation over and over again. He's like, you know, what did you, where did you play? Did you play football? Where'd you go to school again? It's kind of the same conversation. So it's, it's been one of the probably most challenging things in my life at 21 to essentially lose my father with him still being alive and to not have emotional support, mental support. He can't really communicate in that way to support. And so it's, it's been a struggle, but also at the same time, there's no chance I would be where I'm at today without him going through that accident. There's no way that I would have had the courage to start a business because I always kind of relied on him financially, emotionally, mentally. So the fact that he wasn't able to be any of those things for me, I had to figure out how to be a man. I had to figure out how to take care of myself, how to be creative, how to 
get a job, how to start a business. I had to figure it out. And uh, I don't think I would be, I don't think I would care about humans this much if that didn't happen. And I care deeply about people. Um, I'm trying to put things together. So a lot of different shocks mm -hmm. um, to also at the moment, at that moment, a very fragile man, mm -hmm. uh, strong on the outside, fragile in the foundation, right? So you have the brother challenge, you have the yeah. father challenge, mm -hmm. which seems like a big challenge. You have your own struggles in building your confidence and getting over all of the, you know, mm -hmm. the trauma of the abuse and all of that. And I know that you funneled a lot of that anger and that uh, what I call a poisonous fuel yes. into sports. Absolutely. So sports, you have an edge on a lot of athletes because you have a fuel they don't have. I was willing to do whatever it took. I was willing to sacrifice and experience any amount of pain to accomplish the goal. I would spend, you know, if they were gonna do two hours, I was doing six hours. Like whatever it was, I was willing to put my body and mind through so much pain to feel valuable enough, to feel like I could be the best and to be needed. Because I think I didn't feel needed as a kid, I felt abused and taken advantage of. So I was just like, never again will I be picked last, will I be taken advantage of, abused, whatever. I'm gonna be the most valuable in every sports team that I'm on, whatever it takes. Whether that's I'm working the hardest, I'm the most talented, I'm the most collaborative, I will be the most valuable. And that was the mindset to survive. Mm. And I always tell people that the, uh, you know, anger is the second most powerful fuel in the, in the world. And it got me to where I was at 30, you know, building a multi-million dollar business, accomplishing my goals in sports with football, being a professional athlete, and then playing with the USA handball team uh, on my pursuit of making the Olympics in my 20s, playing with the handball team in my 20s and 30s. And it, it drove me to working nonstop all day on all my goals. But it left me feeling without peace in my heart. And so anger drove me to accomplish. But, and that was the second most powerful fuel. And then love, which I learned once I started to heal and process the trauma, became a sustainable fuel for me. A fuel that I could feel like I could live with for the rest of my life because now I have peace. And it's much more sustainable, much more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, since you brought up love, what does love mean to you? <sighs> I mean, I come back to peace. Love means peace to me. And um, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this right before I came here. I was like, I've been through... Uh, I've been in three long-term committed relationships in the last 10 years. And uh, <laughs> I think um, I, lo I love being in a relationship because I love love. I love being affectionate and, and building something with someone. I just wasn't good at choosing a partner that made me feel loved inside of myself. And, I, and again, the journey for me was uncovering many different things over my last 10 years. And I remember thinking like, why do I keep choosing these types of relationships over and over again, kind of the same pattern? And it wasn't until the beginning of this year um, where I said, you know what? I, and I was in a relationship where I had a lot of connection 
and what I thought was a lot of love for someone. But it was a, it was a toxic connection. It wasn't a healthy, sustainable connection. And I remember saying to myself, you know, I should probably dive into some type of therapeutic experience again, because I hadn't done that in a while. So I was like, let me dive into therapy. And in every previous relationship, I was like, we need therapy. Like, it's not working. And the other three women were like, no, I don't want to do therapy. And I was like, what woman doesn't, like, a man offering to do therapy (laughs) is unheard of in the United States. I don't know if if there's ever a man in any relationship here that's like, let's do therapy, baby. I love you so much. I want to make this work. I'm willing to work on myself and look at my flaws. I just don't know where that happens. Mm. And so I remember doing this with, with the three partners I had, and none of them wanted to go to therapy. I go, I feel like this is a woman's dream, you know, but that's maybe because it wasn't the right fit. And... I, we ended up going to therapy after a year of me asking to go to therapy. And we finally made it happen because it was kind of a breaking point for me. I was like, we're, we can't be doing, we can't do this anymore. This is not sustainable. We either need therapy or we're not going to work out, period. And so we finally did it and agreed to it. And man, did I just realize so much more about myself and how I was abandoning myself in every one of these relationships and how I was coming from, a, and I take responsibility for everything, but I was abandoning myself and my, and I was allowing my boundaries to be crossed over and over again. I was allowing my values and boundaries to be crossed over and over in certain relationships to try to please and make the other person happy. Mm-hmm. My therapist kept saying to me earlier this year that I was trying to buy peace. I was trying to do things by crossing my boundaries to make someone else happy so they wouldn't be angry at me anymore. So I would change who I was to make them happy. I would do certain things that I want to do to make them happy. And then I was resenting myself. I was resenting them and then resenting the relationship. So three elements that I was resenting. But I kept doing it because I just wanted to find peace. Through the therapy, which was every week solo, every week combined for multiple hours, uh, and then my partner doing it every week as well, solo, three levels of therapy, for months we did this. I started to finally realize, wow, I'm just like repeating, I'm trying to fix my parents through this experience and through all these relationships I've been in. I'm trying to fix my parents or like, you know, make someone happy who wasn't happy with me. And that relationship ended And again, I take full responsibility for choosing the relationship, for staying in the relationship, for everything. So there's nothing that these these women were never bad or wrong or anything. They're all sweet women. I chose from uh, an unhealed place certain relationships, a place of lack, Mm. as opposed to fully accepting of who I was. And so my my relationship I'm in now, um, her name is Martha, she's amazing. I remember when we, we first started hanging out, I said, listen, it's funny, I have my phone is over here um, because my therapist was like, at one point she was like, I want you to put a photo of yourself when you're a kid uh, around the time when you were sexually abused on your screensaver. So I have this on my phone still where it's a photo of like my six or seven year old self. Maybe I was five, I can't remember the age, but it's a version of me. And she said, every time you look at it, I want you to think about how you've been there for little Lewis, how you've been there for your younger self, how you've 
healed, how you've taken care of him, how you've processed this, and how far you've taken him to where you are now. It's kind of a weird, I don't know if you guys talk about this stuff here, but the journey of kind of doing that emotional mental work of healing the inner child is what it's called, has been so beautiful. And I never thought about it this way till, you know, 10 months ago, 11 months ago. And so when I first met my, my girlfriend, Martha, it's funny, I picked her up. I just wanted to hang out with her. I, you know, I just wanted to meet her. I wasn't intending to be in a relationship, I just wanted to meet her. And um, my phone was sitting in between, you know, the dash of the car when I went to pick her up. And right away it pops up a photo of a young boy, which was me. And she's sitting there, we just met a couple minutes before, in a few minutes. There's a photo of me and I go, I'm sorry, this is like, this is not my son or anything, because it's like a child, you know, you put like a photo of your child on your phone. I go, this is not my son or anything. This is kind of like, I'm in this therapy process right now. And this is, and she goes, is this, is this you as a kid? And are you healing the inner child? I go, yes. And she's like, I have this on my phone as well of myself. So she shows me a photo of herself on her phone. I go, this is weird. Mm. And she's like, my therapist was having me do the same thing because I was abandoning myself in previous relationships. And I was like, this is crazy. And I go, just to let you know, like, I'm not looking to be in a relationship, but I just want to hang out. And the more we started to hang out, I said, okay, there's obviously some connection here. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not changing who I am. I'm not abandoning myself. I'm never going to change unless I want to change. I'm not changing for you. I'm going to evolve for me and for my mission, but I'm not changing to make anyone happy ever again. I'm not abandoning myself. I'm not going to um, hurt myself that way anymore emotionally or mentally. And I'm just letting you know, the person you see right now consistently showing up is who I am. So if you don't like that, let me know and we will never be in a relationship and that's okay. But I'm letting you know I'm never going to change for you. You have to accept me, you can't judge me. Otherwise, we're not aligned and that's okay. And for years, I was forcing relationships that were not aligned. Mm. That I was trying to change them in certain ways and they were trying to change me. And for me, to go back to your question, that is not love. Love is alignment of values, vision, and lifestyle and finding friends, intimate relationships where you can be in full acceptance of the other person, not trying to change them, not trying to uh, judge them or tell them they're wrong. Maybe they are in certain things, but you trying to change them is not loving. It's controlling, it's manipulative. And in an intimate partnership, I have come to understand that it's all about values, vision, and lifestyle. And the four elements of an intimate relationship, if we're talking about love from an intimate relationship, I've come to understand, you know, are the, uh, the spiritual element, the mental, the emotional, and then the sexual element. And pretty much every one of my previous relationships, I leaned into the sexual element first. And it's extremely hard that I've learned the hard way, um, extremely hard to build a foundation on values, vision, and lifestyle with the sexual element as the foundation. And so I would find myself sexually, uh, you know, having a lot of chemistry with intimate partners in the past. 
And then a year later being like, what is it you want in your life? You know, what are your values? What's your vision? Do you want to like go out and meet people and, and have events? Are you that type of person? Are you more of a homebody? Like the values and the vision of lifestyle were never aligned. The sexual chemistry was there. But for me, that's not love. That's just sexual chemistry. And I confused that with love for 30, you know, something years of my life. And I repeated the pattern over and over again and just felt more and more pain and being like, you know, what is wrong with me the whole time? And that's why I think it's so important to have some type of coach, accountability, therapist, whatever it is, friend to support you in a reflection process of why have you been doing certain things in your past, whether it be career or relationships or whatever it might be, health, anything. And um, this therapist gave me incredible tools to reflect and to process the pain and to realize I was abandoning myself. And that's not love. Maybe there's loving moments. Maybe there's like some connection and like support, but it wasn't fully love for me. And so now love for me is alignment on values, vision, and lifestyle, and fully accepting the person in front of you for who they are, and not committing to them unless you can accept them. Hmm. That's, that's one of the best answers I've got for this question. Because you, you took your time to really tell me your opinion and your yeah. experience. Yeah. And you reminded me of so many, <laughs> so many different uh, things. You reminded me of a very cool quote. I would love to know who actually mm. wrote this. And it said, um, rejection has nothing to do with worth. It has everything to do with incompatibility. Exactly. Alignment, incompatibility. So that's what I was thinking. It doesn't matter. If someone, doesn't wanna, to do if, yeah, if someone doesn't want to be with you, it doesn't mean you're not valuable enough or not worthy enough, talented, smart, beautiful, all these things. It just means you're not aligned to them. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, there's what, 7, 8 billion people in the world. You don't need everyone to love you. Yeah. You know, you just need to find a few people that are aligned with who you are and accept you. Correct. And the more we try to change ourselves to make someone else happy, that is a prison. And that is, for me, pain and suffering based on my experience of doing that over and over in relationships. Um, but saying in this relationship, I'm going to be obnoxiously myself. Like, I'm going to say the truth. I'm going to tell you things you're not, you're not going to like. And I kind of want to scare you about who I am. Because if you can't accept me, then it's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. They were just don't. And you know, Louis, it will come eventually. And this is what people don't realize. It's, and I, when I tell my friends who, let's, let's say they just started dating, right? Or they mm -hmm. just got married. And I'm like, make sure you are who you are. Because 100%. it's going to come out, for eventually. example. For yes, example, don't sit the 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 level at a certain stage or level that is not you for example let's say you hate walks by the beach you hate it don't do it in the beginning don't do it don't do because it because then you come and tell her i don't want it and she's like no you were doing do it, it for three months don't do it just be you if she likes you and i keep repeating this beautiful quote is that it's by monica bellucci and she said don't ever try to change a person you love whether it be a lover or a child because if you do end up succeeding, you might fall out of love with them. Oh, that's so true. And that's what you were just saying. So like, true, stop, man. Stop trying to edit and Photoshop somebody. No. Because they might end up be like, why did I even choose this person? Now, I thought my ego thinks now they suit me, but they don't because yeah. that's not what the person you fell for. Right. 
Exactly. And I don't, I don't think falling in love is the right way. I think it's rising in love nice. through alignment. You know, it's like I used to fall chemically on the sexual element of relationships. And that chemical feeling was so powerful and, you know, explosive that it was like this rush of what felt like love. It was kind of this chemical bonding, I guess it is. And so in this current relationship I'm in, um, I was like, listen, we're not gonna have sex for a long time. Like we're not. Because that's what I've always done in the past and it didn't work for me. So I'm gonna try something new. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe delaying it still doesn't mean we're the right fit, but at least I'm gonna have more clarity. I'm not gonna be chemically bonded to you so I can make rational decisions, not emotional decisions based on a feeling. And I can get to know you as the person and listen to your words and watch your actions and behaviors day after day, month after month, and then make a decision if we want to get committed and, and, and then explore the next level. You know, not, not like you have to figure this out for the rest of your life. Okay, let's, let's get committed and go to the next level and see that phase of life. And I tell you what, it feels incredibly peaceful to come from the foundation of spiritual, mental, and emotional connection first and delay the sexual for as long as possible. For me, it's like laying a brick of spiritual, mental, and emotional. You really get to know the values and the vision and the lifestyle better. If you have those three elements, like where you understand each other in those levels, like I remember thinking to myself, I, I challenge people, if you're in a relationship, or if you think you should be of someone long-term. And listen, I'm still exploring this. I'm not an expert. I've made tons of mistakes in my past, and that's why I think I'm learning more now. But I would challenge people, don't have sex for three to six months. If you're in a relationship right now, to see if you're trying to make a decision, do I want to be with this person or not? Take sex off the table for three months. And can you, do you have a spiritual connection? Are your values aligned spiritually? Doesn't have to be exact, but are they aligned? Is 80% there. Uh, you know, what, how do you guys think about life? Is your philosophy aligned? Do you have some, can you have great conversations? Um, do you like to talk a lot together? Or can you not stand when this person talks to you? And you use the sex as kind of this reset button. So mentally, are you there? And then emotionally, do they know how to regulate their emotions? Or is everything a stressful, reactive freak out for them? And can you handle that? Can you handle their emotions? Uh, have they learned how to process their traumas? Or are they attached to you in an anxious way? Because if so, is that what you want for the rest of your life? Because they're not gonna change. They're not. You're not, don't get in a relationship with someone based on potential. Get into a relationship based on who they are right now. Maybe they change for them, but they're not gonna change for you. And so if you take sex off the table, which for me, felt like uh, impossible, right? It felt impossible. I remember telling some of my guy friends that I didn't have sex for three months and they like spit out their milk, they're free, they're free. They're like, how is this possible, right? And I, and I was just like, I'm tired of making the same mistakes for myself. Again, these women are all great women from my past. I'm not blaming them. I chose out of alignment. Um, and so I would just say, do that to explore, to see if there's a potential, you know. It may still not work out down, down the line. I'm not saying this is the answer for like, you'll be together forever, but is it 
is it setting you up for the next year or two to see like if this is a good potential? Hmm. And I think if people do that, they'll be amazed of whether they like really care about this person and love spending quality time on the spiritual, mental, and emotional side, or if they're like, man, we were just doing this thing because the sex was great and we were just putting up with each other on the other things. You know, maybe it was a four out of 10 as opposed to a nine out of 10 on all those other levels. But if you don't have sex with someone, can you be with them? I challenge people, mm. challenge them. So interesting. Spend three months, no sex, see what happens. You'll either break up or you'll be like, I'm all in even more. Hmm. You know, I'll, I'll say, uh, I'll play devil's adv advocate. Although I love, I love your um, approach to this because you're, you care about Lewis and you want to actually this time not be seduced by the physical chemistry. Yes. So you want to be more rational. However, now let's say um, Lewis is now in a relationship, right? And everything is aligned. The physical mm -hmm. is there, so you want mm -hmm. her, yes. but it's there, but now it's a desire that's just building, building, and anticipation that's building. Mm -hmm. Do you think this anticipation is what's making everything aligned else? You know what I mean? Mm. Because you, you so want this well, physical once you start, to happen. Once you start having sex, you gotta see, am I aligned sexually? So if the other three is a foundation is aligned. No, the question is, yes. is it because you want sex in three months, uh -huh. you're aligning those other things because oh, you no. anticipate that? You know what I mean? Like I you're, you're saying. fooling no, yourself? Because no, I'd rather just be like, hey, we don't have to ever have sex. If you can't accept me and you're gonna, you know, if you can't, if you're gonna judge me, and if I can't feel like I can be 100% who I am authentically in front of you, consistently, hmm. if that doesn't work for you, we shouldn't have sex. Hmm. We shouldn't, personally. Unless you're just down to hook up and okay, cool, but we're not gonna be in a relationship, cool. But you should not be in a relationship, I shouldn't say you shouldn't have sex, you shouldn't be in a relationship hmm. if those things aren't aligned. Then, then you can see like, okay, we still gotta see if we have great sexual chemistry or not, and that might take a few months to figure out once you start having sex. Yeah. And maybe it's not good. You gotta ask you yourself. You know why I say this? Because let's say a woman doesn't go intimate. Mm -hmm. Like she holds off and she yes. says, she tells the guy, no, I want to get to know, I want to get to know, yes. which I would assume a lot of women are more rational Absolutely. on that. Men is like desire, desire, yes. right? And the guy starts to adapt and be a chameleon. He can't do that. Not for long. He can't do it. You're right. Like right you can away. do it maybe a month. I don't At even, some point you're gonna crack. I think you gotta just. But some men are good, man. They're good really at playing good. this really. But then it's not gonna work. He'll feed into everything Absolutely. she wants just to sleep Absolutely. with him. Absolutely. But then you're not aligned because you're abandoning a part of yourself and you're doing something that's not authentic to who you are. You're not being in your authentic power. Hmm. You're doing something to get a result. And that Correct. works, but is that sustainable? No. You know, you can get the girl and you can sleep with the person. Maybe you have great time for many months, but then it'll go back to eventually six months, 12 months, whatever. What do you want in life? What's your vision and what's your lifestyle like? And if your partner wants to stay in every night and you want to go out and meet friends, uh, if you like traveling and they want to stay home. Clash. If, yeah, if you have a, you know, a nine to five and the other's an entrepreneur and they're more flexible, like, is it going to work? It's, the lifestyle is challenging over time. It wears on you. Maybe you can make it work for a year or two, but then it gets challenging. If you have different values, uh, I want kids. I don't want kids. There's different like values and vision in your life. Mm -hmm. If one wants to be healthy, the other one wants to eat candy all day. Different values and vision. Clash.
But, oh, let's hold on to the sexual, because we love each other, we have the sexual bond. Not it's, good enough. It's eventually gonna come to these challenges, values, vision, and lifestyle. And so you gotta ask yourself, do we have enough aligned that will keep us? Listen, I'm an experiment phase. You know, I haven't figured this out fully. What I have figured out is I have incredible peace in my heart for the first time in a relationship ever because I'm being 100% authentic to who I am, which is a imperfect human being. It's not like I have it all figured out. But it's being in alignment with someone who's like, man, I really like all these things about you. And I'm like, great, because this is who I am. This is who I've always been. And this is who I'll be. So don't try to change me. She's like, I don't want to change you. I like you. I'm like, great. And I'm going to keep being myself. So if you try to change me, it's not going to work. It's like, I know. Okay, cool. I'm going to uh, switch to something that uh, I think can help a lot of people. Yeah. So when you lost the thing that was valuable for you, which is feeling important via sports, yes. and then you get injured. And I read that you were even sleeping at your sister's house for over a year and a year half, half, maybe. Yeah. Then, so the first uh, part of this question is, a year and a half is not short, but a lot of people go through depression yeah. or they go through a slump or they are there. It's like quicksand. They're just stuck in it. Right. And they just don't know how to come out. So how did Lewis get out of that year and a half to start life again? And um, yeah, let's start first with that. Um, I was kind of forced to. So my dad had been, I guess, a year and a half already, almost two years now from his accident. So it was really challenging because we were teaching him how to walk, how to talk, how to read and write again. It was like teaching a child how to learn about the world again. So it was very emotional every time I saw him because I'm just like, we wanted him to be back to where he was. And we realized it was gonna be a very long journey. It may never happen. And it's been almost 20 years and it's, it's not there. Um, and so we were dealing with that emotion. And then I just didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. And it was 2008, 2007 when I got injured, 2008 in the USA, the, you know, the housing market crashed, the economy kind of crashed. And so people weren't hiring people with, you know, master's degrees. And I, at that time, didn't even graduate college yet. So I was like, okay, there's no opportunity for me to have a job right now. And I remember using LinkedIn to try to find job opportunities at the time. In 2007, 2008, LinkedIn wasn't that big. I think there's 10 million people on there. Now there's hundreds of millions. And um, I used that because a mentor suggested trying to use it to find a job. But no one was hiring. But what I was doing was I was meeting very successful local business leaders in Columbus, Ohio. And I was meeting them and they were spending time with me to kind of give me wisdom, to share advice and insights about how they'd overcome challenges in their life. So I was interviewing people back then, but I wasn't recording them. I was just fascinated by people and how they got to where they were. After a year and a half of not making any money and sleeping on my sister's couch, my sister gave me one of the greatest gifts of my life. She said, Lewis, you either need to pay rent or you need to leave. I wasn't paying anything and I was just eating for free. I was living for free. And she forced me out in a loving way. And so what I did is I called my brother and I said, Hey, can I stay with you for free? <laughs> and he gave me a gift. He said, uh, my wife says you can stay, but you got to pay $250 a month for the room you're staying in. And that push and that kind of accountability and commitment from actually finding a way to make money was one of the greatest gifts because 
was like, I got to figure this out. Now I need to pay for something. I got to figure this out. It made me very creative. Um, so I started using LinkedIn. I started hosting these networking events around the country, calling them LinkedIn networking events. At the time, Twitter was kind of gaining in popularity. And there were these things called tweet ups in 2008. I don't know if you remember this. We had some, yeah. And I remember going to one from like one person put out a tweet and then like 300 people showed up like three days later. And I was mm. like, this is crazy. I bet I could do this on LinkedIn and help people find job opportunities like I was trying to do at the time. And a lot of people were out of jobs. So I started doing this and my first event, I had 350 people show up nice. and I made it a free event. And I sold uh, kind of four sponsorship tables for $250 each. So I made a thousand bucks from these sponsors. And I was terrified. I was like 25, 20, 24 years old at this time. I was 24. Terrified. Never hosted an event before. I wasn't a business professional. I was just this bum who just got off this injury off this couch. So was played football a couple of years ago and I had no business experience. No idea what I was doing. I'd been to one Twitter meetup and I was like, let me try to figure this out. Maybe I can make some money. Got some sponsors there. And I remember every person that came in the door, I had like one blazer at the time from like college that I put on and tried to look professional. And this is the, I didn't have a suit, just a blazer. And I remember just shaking every person's hand when they walked in. And I was just like, tell me what your biggest challenge is in your life right now and what you do. And they would be like, this is who I am. And I had them put on a name tag. So I'd write down their name, put it on a name tag. They say what they're working on and their biggest challenge. And I said, cool. I just asked each person, what are you working on? What's your biggest challenge? They'd all come through the door. And eventually I was like, oh, my biggest challenge is I need a designer. You know, we're struggling in design. And I was like, oh, I just met like Jeff, like, few minutes ago and I would take that person and walk them over and I'd find be like where's Jeff I go take him Jeff meet Mike he's looking for a designer your designer go and I just started doing that like organically and just okay you need to meet this person you need to meet this person and I realized by helping everyone else accomplish their goals and overcome their challenges they just wanted to help me in return and so I didn't really have any other skills except for I could put events together I could put people together who had opportunities and challenges and help them. And I did 20 events in one year like that. And I started charging at the door and I started, I wrote a book about LinkedIn. So I would sell my book at these events because people were asking me, how are you doing this on LinkedIn? Um, and I just was hustling. I was running around the country on buses and trains and, you know, schlepping books around and trying to like sell books for 10 bucks a pop and hosting these networking events for a year. And that was paying my rent making a few thousand dollars a month and I was paying my rent for the next six months with my brother I finally got an apartment for 495 a month and I remember thinking this is so much money 495 495 dollars and uh, I didn't have a car at the time because I couldn't afford one and I was just like this is crazy that I'm paying this type of rent right now when I was living for free but every time I went from free to 250 a month in rent 250 to 495 a month and every time I had to jump my like creativity and like abundance jumped as well. I started thinking more abundantly. I started like charging more. I started putting myself out there in different ways and being more creative. And so the push to the next level made me just grow mentally, emotionally, you know, overcoming my insecurities about failure. And um, that was kind of that early journey mm -hmm. to learning just how to make a dollar. And then 
I learned more from online marketing. I was just studying people for years about how to be an online marketer. And I created my first course teaching LinkedIn. So I started doing like one-on-one LinkedIn, wrote a book about LinkedIn, hosted LinkedIn events. I just became obsessed with knowing everything LinkedIn and helping people on one platform. And at the time, there was a lot of people trying to be social media experts and teach everything. I was just like, screw everything else. I'm gonna tell you and show you why LinkedIn is the most powerful platform in the world. Will help you get the best relationships, the best connections, job opportunities, and make the most money. And I just became obsessed with teaching people this for years. And I think that was, I didn't even know what I was doing on why being, being in a niche was so important, but it allowed me to accelerate to the top of being known uh, for something powerful in one area as opposed to knowing a lot or a little in a lot of areas. Mm. And that got me massive opportunities. At all the big social media events or conferences, they always needed a speaker on LinkedIn and I had branded myself as the go-to guy by getting results. And so I was always the one who was asked to speak. I was, you know, people called me to help them on their profile early on, the big influencers. So I kind of had access because I was working so hard on one thing. And that just kind of continued to evolve into the next parts of my business. So what is, um what is a, one piece of advice that supersedes everything that you would give teenagers? Learn to heal. I think uh, step one is heal. Process and heal. Whatever it is you need to process. And maybe there was no traumatic events that happened to you, and I hope a lot of people didn't have that. But I call them like big T's. Big T traumas like sexual abuse or you know, physical abuse or something, you know, kind of uh, a tragic accident or a, a big loss in the family or something like that. Uh, it's kind of like a big T trauma. But the little T trauma is where someone neglected you over and over again. Uh, someone put you down consistently, you know, or you just beat yourself up internally because a lot of us tend to do that. Um, you got to learn to heal. And step one, if I would have learned to heal early on, I just would have had a lot more peace in my life. And I think I would have been able to create and make better decisions in relationships, in business, friendships, because I wouldn't have been reactive or defensive. Mm. I would end up being able to witness something from an outside perspective within myself. Be like, okay, I don't need to take this personally. No one's trying to kill me here or attack me. I don't need to respond from a hurt place. And I responded most of my life from pain not from peace and love. And if I could go back earlier, I would have learned, I, I wish I would have like learned the tools to heal sooner, anything in my life. And I would, that's number one, because if you don't know how to heal, it doesn't matter how skilled you become at learning a business or learning a skill set for your career or uh, how good you are at getting the girl to like you or the guy to fall in love with you, none of that, is going to help you, it's only going to mask you for a period of time until you have to learn how to heal. So step one, learn how to heal. Nice. Um, have you ever uh, heard of the desert and the cube question? Desert and the cube? Mm. Tell me, I don't think I have. Okay, this is a cool one. I'm still not like a master at the it. Desert and the cube. Yeah, okay. so close your eyes. Okay. So you imagine, 
You're already in the UAE, so it's not yes, that hard. I was you in the desert, in the desert this desert. morning. I still have sand in my shoes from the desert. <laughs> okay. So you imagine a very calm and quiet desert. Okay. So now you're there. You see a cube appear. Describe the cube. Once you have a visual, if you want to open your eyes, you can, or you can keep it closed. The cube I see is a, a floating white box, like a 3D floating box over the sand. There's a shadow in between the sand and the uh, the cube. Okay. Is it big or small? It's like a medium. You know, it's kind of like... Smaller than you? Sm yeah, half the size as me. Okay. Is it uh, transparent or <clears throat> a solid cube? Solid. Solid. Now... You see something appears, which is a horse. Okay. Describe the horse. Sorry, before the horse. I'm still, see, I'm still mastering You're it. still learning. A ladder appears. A ladder. A ladder. Where? You tell me. Uh, on the floor next to the cube. So on it's, the, it's on flat? The desert. It's or on it's the, up? It's or on a desert next to it. Yeah, on the floor flat it's flat on the floor mm -hmm. what is it made of wood old or new like i don't know a few years old how many steps long ladder short ladder 12 steps 12 steps oh, you have a very <laughs> detailed imagination okay now the horse uh, appears yes describe the horse uh there's no one on the horse there's a saddle it's kind of a it's a brown horse with a darker brown mane, hair, like a light brown and then a darker brown mane. It's got a saddle with, uh, you know, the, the thing in its mouth, but there's no one on the horse. It's just sitting to the, r the right of the cube, the ladder, 12-step ladders on the left. Okay. Uh, it's just kind of standing there, waiting. Standing. Flowers appear. Describe. Um, the first thing that flashed in my mind was red and then white became more prominent. So there's these red and white lilies. They kind of look like lilies, I think. Uh, they're laying in front, kind of like in a, on a bouquet, laying in front of the cube that's floating with the ladder and the horse. Mm -hmm. uh, strong, uh, healthy or wilted? They're pretty healthy, like semi-fresh. Final thing appears, which is a storm. Describe. Storm is in the distance, about three miles back. Hmm. There's just like darker clouds. You can kind of see like the, the rain coming down, but it's more of like a gray look of rain because it's kind of farther back. And you see a little bit of electricity bouncing in the clouds, but not like a big, crazy storm. Interesting. Give me my big phone, please. You can open your eyes. I'm going to help you now. Because I need to get this right. So I'm not going <laughs> to... Right, so I'm the, not going to get... Like, what's the story? Yeah. So now, this is a very... So, um, I read this... Um, this uh, whole psychology research on this through some Japanese uh, researchers. Um, and I thought it was so interesting, Lewis. I think you're gonna like this. So okay. let me click just so I can get you the, the right analysis. So here we go, cube test. 
people can use this with their families and friends. Okay, so here we go. We start with the cube. Mm -hmm. The cube is your true self, mm -hmm. your I or your ego. So the size of the cube is directly related to your impression of yourself. A big cube depicts a more confident person, bold, strong, and willing to be seen. A smaller cube introduces the possibilities of rewriting being more shy, mm. somewhat introverted, who would much rather blend than be out. A cube standing on the surface implies stability. You probably know what you want from life and you intend to get it. Whilst the sunken cube is now you floating, you're the first person to say floating. Connect to the more artistic type of person. Mm. Often you're dreamers and creators as well as the spiritually elevated. Mm. Okay. Ladder is your friends and family. So a ladder standing apart implies that you probably resolve most of your issues on your own. Mm. Uh, a touching ladder means you would do some things alone, but you also have some guidance maybe from friends and family. Um, the more codependent person has it firmly on the cube. You didn't. Um, should your ladder be higher than the cube, you value your friends and uh, family very highly. A ladder at equal height. A lower or shorter than the cube would mean that you regard yourself as a leader or alpha type, mm -hmm. which I think is more to, to your liking because it was flat. Mm -hmm. uh, the older there was the ladder... There was 12 steps. So. Yeah, so, we're, so the amount of steps is the ladder relates to the amount of people in your circle. Mm -hmm. Plus minus 12 refers to you having a few friends, but you also entertain acquaintances. Plus or minus 12? Yeah. Specifically 12. Yeah, interesting, interesting huh? Interesting. Uh, the, and then the older the ladder is a direct result of your subconscious relating to how well or how long you have known your friends. Mm -hmm. If it's a newer one, it's now that you're working on new and maybe evolving old mm. uh, relationships. Mm. Horse is your partner. So are you seeing a, a sturdy brown working horse? Then a dependable, dependable and reliable partner is what you want in a partner. If you saw a glamorous prancing horse, you would be the type of person that values the outward appearance more so and might need someone that you would like others to approve of. Mm. What's the unicorn or Pegasus might reveal unrealistic expectations. <laughs> so that's <laughs> all. Unicorn. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. That's funny. Um, insecurities or uncertainties in a relationship would be depicted as a horse moving away from the cube, whilst a horse moving towards the cube would be a sign of a new relationship. Mm -hmm. yeah. A close relationship would be revealed by a horse that is close to the cube. I, I saw it. I saw it. it I saw it facing close. Yeah, yeah. the flowers yeah. are your kids. So a vibrant blossoming garden reflects on the health and prosperity of your children. A cube that is overgrown with flowers could imply that your children are kept very close, whilst wilt wilted or dead flowers could be a sign of broken or lost relationships. Mm -hmm. Look at the distance between the cube and the flowers. Now look at the relationships you have with this respect, and so that's hopefully In the future. The future. Yeah. This was interesting. A storm is your fears. So can we can tell where you are today mm -hmm. with this because you've had your storms. A thunderstorm symbolizes threat and anxiety within yourself. If the storm is vaguely in sight, you said three miles, yep. or in the horizon, you are at more peaceful inner place. Mm -hmm. However, the closer the storm, the closer the immediate. And then it goes into the ones that answer that the storm is affecting the cube and moving mm -hmm. the cube. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah. I thought this was so interesting. Yeah, and you had I've never heard that story. I never yeah. heard it, yeah. Okay, uh, hypothetical question. Mm -hmm. If you could see, if Lewis can ha has the ability to see a characteristic that he chooses above people's heads with a gauge. So while you're walking, let's say you choose sense of humor, you would see somebody's very funny or not. It can be wealth, it can be honesty, whatever. What would you choose? 
what I choose to see above them. Yeah, you can choose only one characteristic that you think is important to you. Well, I feel like I see one above them already. Which is? Confidence. Interesting. I feel like right away, within a moment, I can feel and see the person and their entire past. Hmm. And I can feel maybe not specific events that have happened or whatever, but I feel the way they feel about themselves inside. And so I can see above them already if it's like super, you know, at peace, confident, certain about who they are, um, or unsure, insecure, fearful, anxious, resentful, angry. And the reason I feel like I can see that already is because I've been on both sides and I lived with the insecurity, fear, resentment, anger for many years. And I wore a mask to try to not show people that. And so I can tell quickly when there's a mask because I lived with masks, many masks on for many years of my life to try to project a false sense of security, confidence, you know, that I had things figured out, that I was, you know, mm. intelligent and smart and talented and these things to try to fit in and belong. Um, and again, over the last eight, nine years of this journey, I've realized like, man, really the only thing that matters is me being at peace within myself and not worrying if someone else likes me or not, but do I like myself? Am I confident and secure with how my self-esteem, you know, I think, I think I saw Will Smith talk about this on a video recently where he's like, it's funny how we try to put uh, other people's opinions on our self-esteem when self-esteem should be about how we feel about ourselves, not someone else's opinion. And so I feel like I already have that, but if there was something else, I, th I think I would keep what I have because I think that says a lot about someone if they actually love themselves or not. Hmm. And if someone doesn't love themselves, what else do you need to know? I mean, if they're honest or telling the truth or not, I mean, that comes down to self-love. If you love yourself, you're honest. Hmm. You tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable or painful or eh, you're like, because you have a value of self. Uh, I'm not sure what some of the other meters would be that people say, you it's know, so how much money they have. It's like, that's not an important thing for me to, you, yes. to figure out if they have a lot of money. Okay, maybe they could help me with something financially, but is this the type of person I want to be in relationship with in my life? Mm -hmm. So I'd rather know, do they love themselves? Are they kind to themselves? And are they kind and loving to other people? Because yeah. all the money and success doesn't matter. So, I mean, it it's helpful. It's it's It matters in some respects. But again, you go back to what would I advice would I give to, to override every other piece of advice to teenagers? Heal yourself first. If you haven't healed, then what are we creating for? What are we building for? What are we trying to accomplish? Why are we driving to get a better career or to learn a skill or build a bigger business? What's it for? If it's for service and impact and creativity and, you know, diversity, if it's for like creating something meaningful, cool. If it's for approval, fitting in, feeling worthy, it's just never going to feel enough from my personal experience. I don't know where that ever comes to. I've accomplished my goal. Now I feel enough. I just don't know who has said that. You might feel excited in the moment. You might feel thrilled and feel like, okay, I worked really hard. But if you still haven't healed whatever it is, little T or big T's in your life, 
you're going to need more and more and more to, f- to fulfill that feeling. And so mm-hmm. go back to healing first. And then you can truly come from a place of peace and create whatever you want. Louis, are you still angry? I don't think I'm angry. I think I feel anger in moments. Like I can have the, the feeling of anger. Hmm. But I don't feel angry. So you heal to a good degree because you were very angry when you were Absolutely. in the sports. Absolutely, yeah. And I feel like um, there are things that happen still where I feel anger. But I don't... Which is human. Yeah, of course. And I don't think you're going to eliminate the emotions. But what I've learned to do is not make that my foundation. Hmm. The foundation that I work on consistently is peace and joy and gratitude. The first things I said to you is, I'm grateful to be alive today because 150,000 people did not wake up or they died in some way. And you and I and everyone in this room wasn't one of them. What an amazing gift. What a beautiful opportunity that I got to be here with you today. And if I didn't, if I died today, I wouldn't have had this opportunity. So for me, I continue to focus on, man, I'm not perfect. I've got lots of things to improve still. I'm a flawed human being that's figuring things out. And I'm going to need to be figuring it out for the rest of my life. You know, the reason I've been doing nine years of interviews that are recorded really a lot longer is because I feel like I want to always have a beginner's mind. I can interview multiple experts on a certain topic and still want to interview more because I feel like there's another angle. I could still get something and pull something that could make me a better human being. Mm. And um, that makes me feel very grateful to know that I have that access and that I can keep learning. What are you afraid of? Uh, the thing I'm afraid of most is lacking the courage to 100% be who I am and pursue the things that are calling me, that are pulling me. And um, I think if I live a long life and I look back and I'm like, you know what, I was afraid, I, I didn't go after what I wanted. And the thing that was pulling me, I just shoved it down. I didn't do it. I think that's what I'm afraid of most is mm-hmm. just being like, you know what, I, I don't care if I fail or if I don't accomplish my goals. I used to care so much. Every failure was horrible for me. I was a sore loser. I couldn't lose in sports. Otherwise, I didn't want to hang out with people. I was mean. I was nasty. I didn't know how to lose, which drove me to, you know, excel at something, but it made me feeling very empty inside. But I, so the goals actually don't matter if I accomplish them or not. I want to accomplish all my goals. But it's not the end-all, be-all. What matters and what I'm afraid of is just not actually going after it. Hmm. And then thinking, ah, I was a coward. And I didn't actually go do what I wanted to do. I wasn't a model uh, of inspiration for my friends, my family, or whoever was consuming my information. I I was a fake. I was a phony. I was a coward. And I would hate to look myself in the mirror and say, man, you're a coward. You didn't take the shot. Again, I can f- I'm happy to fail nonstop. I can live with failure. I can't live with not trying. Hmm. That I would just make me sick. That's what like that's my fear. That I, I would be make- so much of a coward to not swing, you know, just not taking a bat. Hmm. Like if I if I humiliate myself in front of the world, I can live with that. 
I can't live with looking myself in the, in the mirror and saying, you're a coward and you didn't try it because you were afraid of what people would say about you. That is not okay with me. Best moment in your life so far? Oh, man. Well, there's two things that came to mind. Tell me. Right away. If I thought about it longer, I'd probably, maybe who knows what would happen, but um, best. One was, it was always a dream of mine to go to the Olympics. Mm. I've never been to the Olympics as an athlete. I've been as an attendee, but I haven't qualified. And I remember after football was done, I broke my wrist, I had surgery here, and I wasn't able to play football anymore. I discovered this sport when I was on my sister's couch, I was watching the Olympics, um, the 2008 Olympics in China, I was watching it as I was recovering from this injury. And I saw late at night on TV, the sport called team handball. And I never heard of this sport. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of team handball. It's bigger in Europe, not that big in the USA. And I was like, where has the sport been my entire life? I was born, this is made for me, this sport is what I'm like, all my skills work perfectly in the sport. And I was broke on my sister's couch. And I was thinking like, I got to find a way to make the USA national team. Because if I make the team and we go to the Olympics, I will be an Olympian. I didn't have any money. This was 2008. And I remember saying like, when I make enough money, and there was no team in Ohio. I was living in Columbus, Ohio at the time. There was no team there. So I started researching USA team. And is there a pro league in the USA? There was nothing. There's amateur club teams kind of scattered around the country. And New York City had the national championship amateur team. And I said, I need to figure out a way to make money so I can go to New York City, live there, you know, play on this team, get good enough so I can go make the USA team and then go to the Olympics. So for the next, yeah, three years, I worked to make money, save money. I moved to New York City without having any contact. No one would get back to me on the team. So for three years, I would reach out to people, I would email people, Uh, no one would reply to me on the team there in New York City. So I just show up because they have an address of where they practice twice a week in New York City. On the website, they have the address. I show up and I literally, I shit you not, I walk into the, the court one day and I say, hey, my name is Lewis Howes. I just came from Ohio. Um, I'm here to learn handball and make the USA national team and go to the Olympics. It's the first thing I said to this group of no Americans, all Europeans and people from all over the world that had moved to New York City to, to live, and they were former professionals in their country, and they were there playing uh, on a club team. And in every other language you can imagine, sp- and Arabic, they were just making fun of me, laughing at me. Just like, who is this American kid thinking he's gonna come in here and learn this sport and make the USA national team and go to the Olympics? They said, this is our last practice of the year. We just won the national championships last weekend. We're taking the summer off. Uh, Come back in a few months if you're serious. And so I end up staying for a few months. I come back. I show up to the first day of practice again. I say, here's who I am. This is what I'm here to do. They laugh at me again, but they say, we'll let you play with us. Nine months goes by and I show up like a maniac on a mission for nine months to learn this sport and connect with all these guys. And they brought me under their wing. They taught me the sport. Um, nine months later, 
I got a, an email that said, you've been selected on the USA men's national handball team. We leave in a month to go to Argentina for the Pan American Championships. And it was, for me, just thinking about it, just getting it on my phone and reading it, I was so emotional because this was a dream I had as a kid to like represent my country and have the chance of going to the Olympics. So for the last 10 years, I you know, played all over the world with the USA national team. And it's been just a beautiful journey for me to see that it's never too late even though one career ended it in football, it was never too late to like pursue the next thing. And that's where I go back to like, I don't wanna say that I was a coward, that I didn't move to New York City and at least see, could I make it? And I made the USA national team. I haven't made the Olympics yet, never say never, but I can look myself in the mirror and say, you know what, you moved, you went for it, you made the team, you had some ups and downs and some injuries, but you did it. And you didn't accomplish the ultimate goal, but you can face yourself. And for me, it's something I'm really proud of because there's a lot of guys that I knew in college and in pro that were way more talented athletes than me that should have, could have done something great with their athletic abilities, but they didn't have the courage to go for it. And so I'm just grateful for that for myself. And I would say the second thing, it's probably a two-parter, is this year, the therapy and healing work that I've done this year to let go of these kind of patterns of relationships where I abandoned myself, not where any of these women did anything to me, it's where I abandoned myself and coming to a place of acceptance and responsibility and then entering into a new relationship saying, this is 100% me, I'm not doing anything I don't wanna do. And if you're cool with it, cool. If you're not, cool, I wish you the best. And I'm proud of myself for stepping into my authentic power with my emotions and my heart, but specifically for myself and not doing things to make anyone else happy. Hmm. That's the two-parter? That's the, that's the two-parter, yeah. Um, worst moment in your life so far? Hmm. I think uh, all the moments that I let myself down, um, all the moments I cheated, stole, lied over and over again for years when I was younger, I think it's not one thing, it's that I just wasn't proud of like who I was for many, many years to need to steal a lot when I went into stores. I was stealing a lot for about a year and a half, cheating on homework and tests pretty much all through school just to kind of make it, lying in relationships, like cheating, stealing, lying. I'm just not proud of that. I would say those are the worst things, but I also feel like there's nothing I would take back because I feel like I have a lot of empathy and compassion for humanity you know I feel like I just experienced a lot of stuff and did a lot of things that I'm not proud of that make me want to be of service and be better today and try to try to help others so hmm. and I felt like I I did them out of a pain out of like a, a I didn't I didn't love myself and so I did things to try to get a rush or adrenaline or whatever to survive uh, emotionally and um 
there's a lot of people in the world that I think are, are doing that to themselves. And I think it's because they don't know how to heal. It goes back to healing for me. I didn't know how to heal. I didn't know how to process my emotions. So I did things to try to like protect myself and feel and you know, whatever. And if I knew the skills of healing, I don't think I would have done, you know, a fraction of the things I did. And which goes back to my mission is to serve humanity, to help them improve the quality of their life. And a lot of that is through healing. They didn't teach me and you how to heal in school. That's why I created the School of Greatness. What does it mean to learn the skills of the self to be greater? And the healing journey has been a powerful one for me. Hmm. Diana is your mom? Yeah. Uh, Diana in one word. Oh my gosh. Diana is joy. My mom is joy. Nice. Your dad's name I couldn't find. Ralph. 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 So Ralph in one word. Oh man. What would this word be? Acceptance. Hmm. Why would you say that? Mm. I feel like I've just had to learn to accept him and his journey from reflecting back to childhood to now, accept the process. It's funny because I don't think I've ever told this story, but when I, my dad uh, was, I don't think he ever missed a game. Maybe he missed one or two games in like my high school and college career in pretty much every sport. He almost showed up every time. In my senior season of football, um, I'd actually transferred a school to go back to be closer to him so he didn't have to commute because he was flying around the country nonstop. So I said, my senior year, I want to transfer to a school to be closer to my dad. He decides to leave for two weeks to go on a vacation with his fiance at the time to New Zealand. They really wanted to plan this trip for years. This was kind of the only time I could do it. I had a bye week, so I didn't have a game one of these weeks. The other week I had a game. He was like, this is really the only two weeks where I can go this year, you know, but I'm gonna be back for the rest of the season. So he comes to the first game of the season, my senior year, I ball out. I'm the player of the week in the conference. I have like three touchdowns, 100 yards, 100 plus yards, 10 catches. I'm the player of the week in the whole conference. The first game of the season, my senior year dominate and then the next day I see him and he's having this kind of like moment where he's by himself and I go dad what's going on and he goes you know I'm really excited to go on a spiritual journey to New Zealand and he just kept saying like this is going to be a spiritual journey for me and there was something about him that was just weird he was just acting different I, I don't know how to explain it but it's just like I almost feel like he knew this was going to happen and when it happened I was like, crap, you know, I didn't know what that event would be, but I knew it was going to be something. And so I've had to learn how to accept my father for being, for leaving my senior year at this game and then having this accident to accept him for being a completely different person than what I knew him to be for 21 years, to accept the fact that he's physically here, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally, the the person he was is gone and just accept all of it. It's the messiness of it all. 
and accept him for who he was when I was a child growing up, living in kind of fear, accept him for his journey, the second half of my you know, adult life to where he became an amazing father. It's just this interesting dynamic and um, accept all of it. Hmm. It's, it's, it's just a complicated, it's not a clean thing about it. And it's just like, where's the lesson and where's the blessing in all of it? Because if I don't learn to make meaning and sense of it and use it for good in my life, then it's wasted. Hmm. So acceptance. For your sake. Mm-hmm. Last two. So the, before the last one is a hypothetical question. Okay. Since you have a good imagination. <laughs> If we take Lewis's heart uh-huh. and we place it in front of you, yes. what would it tell Lewis? Like it's speaking to me or you mean my interpretation of the way it looks or? Speaking to you. What would your heart tell Lewis? Um, it's funny because I did this process, kind of a process similar to this. Um, where I imagined uh, my little Lewis was in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. I imagined like he was in front of me and he had been through a lot of the traumas already. And I remember having this conversation where I stared at, you know, my younger self, like this tall or whatever, And from my adult myself, from where I'm at now, and I had a conversation. And again, I don't know if your audience might think this is weird or something. No, by the way, I'm it's not... a very co- popular thing. And one of the Arabic guests recently talked about really? exactly this. Yes. Yeah. So I'd never done this before. I never even thought about this until my therapist got me into this process. So I imagine myself like standing in front of my younger self and literally just in an open-body position, like staring into my eyes. It's, it's crazy. You know, it's kind of like this emotional experience. And I communicated to him, my younger self, that I got your back, that I'm here for you, that I love you, that you are enough, that you are loved, that you matter, you are worthy. I said all these things to my younger self. And then I imagined myself hugging my younger self, like holding my younger self, feeling like this 70 pound, you know, five, six year old little boy that had gone through lots of traumas and confusion and fear and anxiety and worry and uncertainty and hugging him and just saying, I got you, I got your back, I'm here for you. Look how, you know, if you could see the future, you'll see how far we've, we've come, how far I've taken you on this journey. We've learned how to heal, we've learned how to grow together. And I remember just kind of like hugging him and then just kind of like becoming one with like kind of embracing him and being in me and just having this kind of, I don't know, crazy experience where I just felt like I was able to, to like bring in that little Lewis and really like love him fully. And so it, <clears throat> kind of going off here, but if my heart came out now after that experience and it was speaking to me, it would say, I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of the, the work you continue to do to heal yourself and to be of service to other people. And I just know for me, when I look in the mirror, 
I want to know that I'm doing everything I can with, with the resources and tools that I have to make an impact on one person or many people every day. If that's only one interaction. I just want to make sure I give my best if I can with the resources and tools I have. And so my heart would say like, I'm proud of you for doing the work. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. I'm proud yeah. of you. Thanks, Thanks brother. Appreciate it, man. Last one. Yes. Lewis in one word. Hmm. Um, I was gonna, I mean, I was gonna say peace, but I would say love because love encompasses the peace for me. So love. Thanks. I really did. That's beautiful. Thank you. And this is, I think by far our longest uh, AV talks. Oh. And it was so rich. Uh, it's probably because I just rambled for so long. And you, you ramble good. There yeah. are people who ramble, but they just ramble right. and it's like sporadic. Right. You ramble good. It's rich, you know, Appreciate and it. I, I you. think you really, or I hope you, you sound authentic. You try to be authentic and detailed. That's my goal. It's really nice. Doing the best I can with what I got right now. And yeah. I can like, you know, a lot of people, you know, Lewis, they, they talk shit, mm -hmm. like they'll say things that are corny or perfection and yeah. like, yeah, life is good and I'm grateful and all of these things. And you're like, eh, you don't feel it. Like they say it. But I'm like, did you read it somewhere and you just repeated it? Or is you that what you asked me right away? You're like, did you? I need to, I need to challenge it. So I see how <laughs> yeah. genuine is yeah, that yeah. statement. And then while I go through the interview, it shows, is this person really grateful or he yeah. just said it because it's a nice quote, you know? Right. Because people say- What well, is a nice quote? Cause I, I read it a couple months ago. Cause I was like, I wonder how many people, I was curious how many people die a day. Yeah. So I was like, is it a lot?